thank you heavenly father for this day you've given us we thank you for the opportunity to take in your word i pray that the believers here might continue to appropriate your word by faith help us to put our thoughts beneath your thoughts we know that many times our thoughts are not your thoughts and our ways are not your ways but we know father that you have revealed your thinking in the scripture we pray father that we might receive with humility father the word of god Help us to continue to appropriate the Word of God through the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit and by faith. Sanctify the believers here through your truth because your Word is truth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Last time uh, we were together for Sunday school, I've been studying the book of 2 Samuel, at least surveying it, and uh, dealt with the uh, adultery and murder of David uh, and the tragic consequences in the life of the believer of sin. And uh, we're going to further explore that. I want to lay out some principles about suffering. Uh, We're all appointed to suffer in one or two ways. We can suffer under divine discipline, which David did. Or we can suffer under God's plan and will to promote our faith and mature our faith. And so I want to begin here with a chart here. So... I thought an interesting contrast as far as suffering is concerned would be two individuals, David and Job. David and Job. They both suffered, but for different reasons. Uh, David, I think, is describing uh, the suffering of a carnal Christian. A born-again believer, but at the period in time, time in his life when he lusted and he committed adultery and committed murder and he refused to acknowledge that, own up the wrongdoing, Uh, He was under God's divine discipline. And God has a purpose in disciplining his children. And there's a positive benefit for divine discipline. But uh, certainly this is different than the suffering of Job. Job was a spiritual believer. Job wasn't in rebellion against God. But God permitted suffering for a different purpose in Job's life. So we're going to look at a couple of these contrasts. We're going to look at the fact that uh, there are various stages of divine discipline in David's life. And David went through all these various stages except the last one, death. We have weakness. Let's take a look at Psalm chapter 32. Psalm chapter 32. And uh, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 uh, both deal with David under divine discipline. And uh, Psalm 32 describes some of that condition and uh, he speaks of physical weakness later on in this uh, chapter he talks about uh, let's look at um, verse 3 actually it's verse 3 when I kept silent my bones grew old through my groaning all day long he had some he had uh, physical weakness because of his uh, discipline he was physically weak because he was under God's divine discipline Notice here, verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. God's disciplining hand was heavy upon David. And he says, My vitality, my life juices, so to speak, my energy was turned into the drought of summer. He was sapped of uh, energy, and therefore he experienced uh, illness, I think, under divine discipline. So we have here David's physical weakness, David even experienced chronic illness under the heavy discipline of God. But one thing David avoided is the sin and the physical death. And uh, that sin, by the way, is mentioned in Psalm 51. 
he indicated that after he acknowledged his iniquities and owned up the wrongdoing, he was delivered from blood blood guiltiness. He was delivered from the guilt of uh, what his sin deserved. His sin deserved death. Of course, under the Mosaic Law, uh, adultery and murder were death sentences, had a death penalty. And David was deserving of the death sentence. Uh, but he avoided that by owning up to wrongdoing. He said in verse 14 of Psalm 51, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, meaning the guilt or penalty of bloodshed, which was murder. He said, Deliver me from that penalty. And he was, by owning up the wrongdoing, God did deliver him from the guilt of bloodshed. And notice also in 2 Samuel 12.13, Samuel 12.13, when Nathan confronted him finally after a period of nine months that uh, he refused to own up the wrongdoing, David finally owned up to wrongdoing. He acknowledged his sin. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Remember later on Psalm 51, he would say, against you and you only have I sinned. Sin is primarily an offense against God. Now, certainly we can commit wrongdoing toward uh, uh, believers and unbelievers, uh, which David did. But ultimately, it's an issue of fellowship broken between the believer and the Lord. And he says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. Notice this last phrase. You shall not die. You shall not die. You deserve the death penalty for what you did. You deserve death as a believer. But he avoided that by honest confession, owning up the wrongdoing, and therefore avoided the sin unto death. So, even in the New Testament, we'll look at some verses in the New Testament of divine discipline for the born-again believer. There's various stages, weakness and illness, chronic illness, and finally death. The Corinthians certainly who were uh, despising the Lord's Supper, uh, there were those who checked out early under God's divine judgment. That doesn't mean they lost their salvation, but certainly they lost their life because of ongoing rebellion against God. Now, in Job's case, though, God permitted uh, Satan to uh, uh, test Job in the sense that God allowed Satan to remove his possessions. Let's take a look at a couple stages in, in Job's uh, maturity. Uh, let's say, take a look at Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, verse 12. And basically, Satan's premise was, uh, you know, the only reason why Job is serving you is because of all the good things that he, you give him. That's the only motivation. And uh, and by the way, uh, Job put that lie. Uh, he uh, Job uh, said Job uh, refuted that in his life, showing that no, that's not the reason why he was serving. Uh, notice in Job chapter one, though, verse twelve, the Lord said to Satan, "Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on the, his person." So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, meaning that. You can touch his possessions. You can remove his physical possessions. And Job was a wealthy man. We have the introduction of the book of Job. And he had great possessions. And Job 1.3 indicates some of the possessions that he had. But he was a wealthy individual. And 
his possessions were removed. And would he curse God at that point? Would he turn his back on God? And he did not. So God was using uh, testing in Job's life for his promotion, his benefit. Notice Job 2, the second phase uh, after the possessions were removed and obviously uh, Job did not curse God. His wife suggested to do so, but uh, he did not. Uh, In Job chapter 2, verse 6, the next uh, phase of intensified testing is found here. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. I mean, you could touch his body. We know exactly what happened to Job. He broke out with boils all over his body. He had to take broken pottery because it itched so bad to scratch those open wounds. Later on, it says those wounds were infested by worms. Uh, You know, we had several of the physical ailments that are vividly described in the book of Job. And so he experienced chronic illness uh, and even wanting to die at this point. Uh, But God was using that for his benefit. God was answering a lie against Satan. And whether Job realized that at that time or not, I would think Job finally realized that because if Job wrote the book of Job, he realized at the end the real reason for his testing. But uh, God permitted that in his life. And notice he said here that he is not, in this case, allowing Satan to take his life. He said there's a limit, Satan, on what you can do to Job. I'm going to allow you to take his possessions. I'm going to allow you to to affect his body. But you know what? One thing you cannot take here is his physical life. So Job 2.6 again, he said he's in your hand, but spare his life. Spare his life. So... We have here then two clear contrasts between suffering for a Christian who is in rebellion against God and suffering for a believer who is growing and, and eventually will be promoted. And we know exactly the outcome of Job. Job received twice as much at the end, and God promoted Job through this period of suffering in his life. And there's a New Testament reason for suffering in the believer's life, so we're going to look at the carnal Christian, once again in the New Testament, uh, three stages of divine discipline mentioned here in the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, notice here, uh, he's speaking about uh, the Corinthian believers who were becoming flippant about partaking of the Lord's Supper. They were coming to uh, communion drunk, intoxicated. They were thinking lightly about the Lord's Supper. Um, And therefore, many of the believers here were under divine discipline because of that. Uh, Notice in verse 29, He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, and the unworthy manner means out of fellowship. I think it explains here in the context with the unworthy manner eating out of fellowship and that's why by the way uh, when we have communion we have we allow a time to acknowledge sin privately before god so that we might eat in a worthy manner we're doing this in remembrance of the greatest event in human history jesus christ death on the cross for our sins and we are not to view that in a light-hearted manner we are to reflect on what christ has done and give him thanks so notice here for this reason uh, what verse verse 29 let's look at verse 29 he eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself notice that judgment is divine discipline 
not discerning the Lord's body. And he says in verse 30, for this reason, many are weak, physically uh, weak. As David said, my vitality is, is drained away like the drought of summer, similar in David's case. And then he says, many are sick among you. I think this is chronic illness. Now, once again, we had to state that not all sickness is a form of divine discipline. <laughs> so just because you have a cold or a flu or something like that doesn't mean you're under divine discipline. It can be the opposite. You can be a believer who's being promoted and learning that in your weakness, God is strong. God's strength is made perfect in your weakness. But he said, for this reason, though, in this context, they were chronically ill because of God's divine judgment, his discipline. He said, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you. And notice the third stage, many sleep. Now, you might say, well, these Corinthian believers, these Corinthians were unbelievers. Problem with that is the word sleep is a metaphor for physical death. In the life of the believer, it's never used in the New Testament of a death of an unbeliever. The death of an unbeliever is never described as sleep. We know when Paul wrote First Thessalonians uh, chapter four, um, he said, "We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed." He's referring to believers. So, picture of death for the believer is picturing of sleep. It's like a person who has fallen asleep and now is awake in heaven. Beautiful imagery there for the death of the believer. Um, but so he's speaking clearly of believers under divine judgment, under divine discipline. Three stages, weakness, chronic illness, and death. Whereas a spiritual believer, let's take a look at James, testing in the life of a spiritual Christian, a Christian who is in fellowship with God, God sends trials to test our faith. Faith must be tested in, the, in your life. God will send trials trials in your life so that your faith is tested and uh, James chapter 1 verse 3 he says here uh, let's go back to verse 2 my brother encountered all joy he's addressing believers when you fall into various trials multiple tests sometimes our testing comes in waves we have this test and then okay we pass that and another trial comes and another trial comes multiple testing he said here Count on all joy. Now, we're joyful not because we're going through the test. <laughs> you don't praise God because you had a flat tire on the highway and, you know, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but uh, you might say, oh. But uh, the, 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 we know, though, we can rejoice because God has a purpose in the test. And I think that's knowing God's plan. Once we know that God has a purpose in my trials and He's working out those trials for good. We know all things work together for good to those who love God. By the way, that context in Romans 8, he speaks of suffering there. Read that section in Romans 8. All things work together for good. Romans 8, 28. Look at the context about suffering. So God's working it out for his divine purpose and plan. Now, he says here that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now, King James has patience, but it literally means to endurance or perseverance. God wants you to continue to live the Christian life. So this test allows you to receive, uh, you know, allows God's through the Spirit to be manifest in you and it gives you endurance, just like a runner. Um, you know, runner runs so far and then he has to run more and he, he builds up endurance. 
And so, same with testing our life. God's building endurance in your life so that you will persevere and be faithful to the end. So there's a purpose in that. He allows his trials. And by the way, God's trials are tempered. Um, God will not allow things into your life that you're completely unable to handle. And of course, we know we handle them by God's enabling power. I think what happened in Job's case is unique. I think some have said that's evidence testing, meaning that it's the ultimate test of a born-again believer, that God removes all of his possessions. He afflicts them with chronic illness. God doesn't uh, impose those kind of tests on a baby Christian. They can't handle it. And so Job was different in that case. Uh, and God measures his tests. He knows exactly how much to give you and how long. Testing has a limit. And then God will check and see if you're resting in faith, trusting in him. And then he'll lift it sometimes. Sometimes he'll allow you to continue in that. But he does it according to his perfect plan. And so when we receive testing, we need to realize that God has it measured. Uh, He has a purpose for it. And he wants your faith to mature. Now notice here, maturity is the goal for every believer. Our goal, every Christian should strive to be a mature Christian. Mature Christian. In James chapter 1, he says, Let endurance have its complete work. Meaning, don't faint before you get to the finish line. Don't faint before you get to the goal at least. Um, Continue to run with perseverance, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. He said, Let endurance have its complete work that you might be perfect. Now, the New King James has word perfect, but literally the word means mature. Teleos is, by the way, the Greek word meaning to reach a goal. And the goal in mind is maturity. So God wants you to move toward this goal, but in order for you to reach that goal, there must be resistance. There must be you know, strength training so forth, just like Olympic athletes. They don't get there overnight. <laughs> And therefore, you don't get the spiritual maturity to be a mature believer without God allowing multiple times of testing your life. And God's working out his plan so that you might be a mature believer and have impact. Um, now, ultimately, though, notice maturity will, will eventually lead to reward at the Bema. Look at verse 12. Blessed is a man who endures testing, for when he has been approved... And that's the key. Uh, The key is approval at the judgment seat of Christ. Well done, good, and what? Faithful servant. Approval. He will receive the crown of life. One of the various crowns a believer can earn uh, at the judgment seat of Christ, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So those who endure testing will be rewarded. God will reward his faithful servants. So that's testing for promotion, ultimately reward in the life of the believer. Whereas divine discipline, there is a purpose in that. God wants you to avoid death and shame and loss, which brings us to this uh, chart here. Let's take a look at Hebrews on divine discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And by the way, uh, this this section in chapter 12, we have the faith heroes of chapter 11, and then the ultimate faith hero is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so chapter 12 begins with the ultimate example of endurance 
and uh, and uh, faith rest and uh, is the, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, verse one. Let's just jump back to verse one, and we'll we'll pick it up in the middle of the verse. Let us run with what endurance the race that is set before us. We need endurance. That parallels what James stated uh, states testing to promote endurance um, perseverance looking unto Jesus he's the object of our faith occupation with the person of Christ through the scripture we are to keep our focus and gaze upon Jesus Christ as revealed in the word of God and therefore looking by the way that looking unto Jesus that Greek word looking means look away from everything else that distracts and focus upon that has a connotation there, meaning the runners do not look at the fans who are applauding or booing. <laughs> the runner looks straight ahead at the goal, right? We can listen to the voices that discourage us. We can listen to family members that don't want us to continue walking with the Lord. We can listen to a lot of voices, and those are distractions. We need to focus on Jesus. And therefore, that's how, we're, how we become winners Winter Christians, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one that lived his life by faith. He finished the goal. He endured even to the point of death, even death on the cross, which was what God's plan was for him. Notice here, thinking little of the shame. He's not embarrassed uh, in suffering. He's thinking little about the shame, especially the shame on the cross, the insults, the Son of God receiving mockery and insults physical abuse he thinks little of this because he's focused upon he, his focus was upon god and notice he has set down now reward he has set down now at the right hand of the throne of god there's promotion philippians 2 goes hand in hand with this you know he humbled himself became obedient he took on the form of a human nature and therefore he came down from heaven to this earth and he went all the way to the cross and therefore God has highly what exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. There's promotion. So uh, with Jesus, he's the ultimate faith hero. Now, verse 3 says, Consider him, Christ, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. All the opposition he experienced can give you spiritual courage. Just like in uh, in battle, sometimes we have if the officers lead in battle and they show spiritual courage, or any other individual who goes out, that many times give, gives a boost in morale of others who follow him. And therefore, we can derive spiritual courage by looking at our Savior and how he handled insults, how he handled testing, how he handled abuse and shame, and therefore be courageous when it hits us. Therefore, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraging your soul. Discouragement is real in the life of the believer. Weariness, tiredness. And therefore, we do face those times, but we are not to faint in the day of adversity. As in the book of Jeremiah, do not faint and give up in the day of adversity. We need to refocus our attention back on God's promises, God's word, uh, the endurance of Christ. And notice here, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. You're, and I think he's referring to Jesus in the garden. 
He prays. He's probably opposed here by all of Satan's demons in, in, in going to the cross and the capillaries in his forehead burst. He sweat blood under intense, severe pressure. We can't even realize how intense that was when he was just sweating blood as he's praying to his father. His disciples are asleep. They're not giving him any support. And he says, you haven't gone that far in your testing like Christ did. And therefore, he says, you have not yet resisted the bloodshed striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. Now, this is God disciplining his own children. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Divine discipline in the life of the believer is be, the reason for that is because God loves you. He wants your, the best in your life. He wants you to glorify Him. And so God has a purpose and, and plan. He loves you. Many times we think we're under severe testing because God has abandoned us. And that's not true. Uh, Romans 8 says, Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, Warfare, None of those things can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So no matter, no matter what you face as a believer, he's not going to abandon you. Even when, even when you're not walking in fellowship with him, he allows that discipline so that eventually we'll see the goal here that you might produce God. He, he wants God living. He wants to wake you up and get back on. He wants you to get back on the path toward maturity and godliness and so god allows those things because he loves you it's called tough love isn't it god's sometimes tough on us when we're in rebellion against him but if we resist his discipline eventually it will lead to our premature death we'll see the goal of resisting and not responding correctly to divine discipline so clearly he says there is uh, stages of divine discipline in the life of the carnal Christian. He's, he mentions chastening, Hebrews 12.5, and then scourging, by the way, in verse 6, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and then scourging, more intensified discipline. Um, one writer uh, translates the word scourge as skin alive with a whip. So the idea of the whips, remember, think about Christ who received the whippings scourgings he was scourged he scourges every son notice son whom he receives so god will intensify the suffering in your life if you're in rebellion you continue down that road of rebellion god may not do this overnight by the way it doesn't happen overnight god's gracious uh it's interesting the book of jeremiah uh the lord said to the children of israel i'm waiting to be gracious to you you're in rebellion against me, but I'm giving you what's called grace space. God doesn't immediately judge us when we rebel against him. God waits for our response. And it's very important that we're not deceived at that point in our life thinking we're getting away with it, like in David's case. We don't get away with rebellion against God. But God may allow a period of time for you to own up the wrongdoing before discipline starts to hit. He's giving you time to acknowledge and own up the wrongdoing. He's giving you time to get back on the road and, and move forward. And uh, 
therefore, God's discipline does not necessarily occur immediately when we live in rebellion against him. But if we refuse to listen, certainly it, it, it picks up. And notice here, scourging, therefore, is the next, uh, I think, stage of divine discipline. And then notice here, if verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten or discipline? Now, what was the result of parental correction? Well, at least what, what is the goal? Godly parental correction. We're not talking about child abuse here, but we're talking about purposeful, godly parental discipline. Notice in verse 9, Furthermore, we had our human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them what? Respect. <laughs> And uh, you, you, uh, they're trying to teach you respect for authority. And therefore, uh, in, in order to avoid heartache and headache later on in your life, and therefore there's discipline of children for a purpose and goal. Even parents, godly parents, have a goal in mind. It's not just because they're mad at you or they hate you. We always have to be careful. You know, as parents, never discipline your child out of just pure anger but we need to do it in a measured way we do discipline but we should do it in a measured way certainly a father does it you know he he disciplines us in that manner and we pay them respect shall we not much more readily be in subjection or submission to the father of spirits and live now the idea is father of spirits means god has given you uh life God has given you life, and he can easily take that life. God gives you life, soul life, and he can remove that life. So we need to respect the discipline of a loving Heavenly Father in order to avoid the sin and the physical death. We are to pay him respect when we're under discipline, scourging. Now, let's take a look then at the purpose of the discipline for the for the carnal Christian, first of all. Hebrews twelve, ten through twelve. So it goes on further to describe the reason for God's chastisement in the life of the believer. Verse ten, for they are earthly fathers indeed for a few days chasten us as seemed best to them, meaning at their discretion. We call it parental discretion. Uh, therefore parents have parental discretion on how they discipline their children and what manner they discipline their children not every child is the same <laughs> some children it's, a light touch will be enough just a rebuke others hard headed <laughs> so uh, you have to step up on the discipline <laughs> everyone's different uh, but at the parental discretion Parents chasten uh, as seems best to them, according to their discretion. But he, God does for our benefit. God disciplines us with a purpose in mind. And therefore, what is that purpose? That we may be partakers of his holiness. Notice that. That we might be partakers of his holiness. Meaning, God sends that correction in your life so that you'll wake up, acknowledge sin, get back on the right path, and start growing again as a believer, and therefore eventually produce godly fruit. That's the goal. That's the goal and purpose of God's discipline 
when we're in rebellion against him. He wants us to get back on the right path. He wants us to produce godly fruit. And therefore, it's not like God is there trying to punish you. We shouldn't see discipline as God just wants to, God hates you and God just wants to punish you. No, he's lovingly sending difficulty in your life so that you will wake up as a believer out of fellowship and eventually turn around and start going, heading back on that path toward maturity so that godly fruit will be produced in your life. Same with the spiritual believer. The ultimate goal is the same, by the way. The ultimate goal for the spiritual believer, let's take a look at um, James 1.4, going back to our text in James, testing for a believer in fellowship. He speaks about uh, the trials of your faith, verse 3, produces endurance, but let endurance have its perfect work that you might be mature, there's the goal, maturity, and complete, lacking nothing. Lacking nothing what? Lacking no Christian virtue. That's it. You will lack no Christian virtue. The fruit of the Spirit will produce through you love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, and temperance. God wants to see all those qualities in your life. So God allows that testing so that we will produce godly fruit. Godly fruit. So the goal is the same in mind whether for the carnal Christian or the spiritual believer. And the key is, will the carnal Christian listen to God's discipline? And hopefully so. And David avoided that last phase, death, by owning up the wrongdoing. Now, there are certain extended consequences we see that David reaped in this family. Uh, Just because we acknowledge our sin does not mean that necessarily all the consequences are removed. Now, sometimes God can remove the consequences and mercy. Um, we have a verse in uh, Minor Prophets that I'm going to restore the years that the, the, the canker worm has eaten, meaning I'm going to restore to you, you know, your losses and mercy. Uh, sometimes God does avoid, knowing your situation, knowing how far down the road of rebellion, uh, God does sometimes avoid those consequences. But in David's life, he, you know that phrase, too much, has, too much has been given, too much shall be required. David was a leader of a nation. And when you have a leader who should be godly under a theocratic kingdom, administered by God, when that leader rebels defiantly, openly, publicly against God, many times the consequences will endure. So, um, you know, David had to reap some consequences as his own family as a result of that. But keep in mind, though, after he owned up the wrongdoing, his peace was restored, his joy was restored. We know in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Fellowship was restored. Uh, and God used that suffering from that point out for his benefit. Understand that. So once you end up as a believer to wrongdoing, the the lingering consequences of your rebellion, I think, can be used in your life for good. Uh, and so that I think that's the case with David. God may not remove all the immediate consequences of open defiance and rebellion against him, as in David. Now David sinned with a high hand against God, murder and adultery. Those are serious sins especially public, as a public leader. And therefore, there were certain consequences that David had to pay. 
And I think that goes back to the sowing reaping principle. Whatever man sows, that shall ye also reap. That's a law all the way through the Word of God. Every dispensation, you have the sowing reaping principle. And David reaped what he sowed. And uh, therefore, uh, God allowed some of the extending, some extended consequences in his life. Now, let's address what can a Christian lose as a believer? What can a Christian lose as a believer? If you're a born-again believer who decides, you know, thank you for heaven, eternal life, I'll see you in heaven. I've heard that before by some believers. I have eternal life, and that's a great thing if you understand clearly the gospel. Uh, But to waste your entire life and live it for self, uh, you're going to lose. You're going to lose some things uh, that you could have had. And we're going to list some things that a believer can lose. Uh, First of all, reward lose reward 1 Corinthians 9.27 let's take a look at uh, we have four passages here on the loss of rewards and I'm gonna, I think I have them right here so Paul mentions this I, in verse 27 I discipline my body and bring it to subjection make it my slave lest when I preach to others I myself should be disqualified adokimos it means disapproved for what? Reward. The whole context is about reward, not disqualified to go to heaven. It's unfortunate that theologians try to take this as you've got to persevere in order to prove you're saved. And that's not what he's saying there, there at all. He's talking about running for the prize. Reward. So you're just, just like a, an athlete that runs out of bounds or doesn't follow the rules. That athlete is disqualified for what? Reward. That's the context here. But Paul says, I can lose reward, even as a preacher to others. Um, and therefore, um, he continues to persevere so that he won't lose out on, his, on reward. Now, another verse, Colossians 2.18. Let no one cheat you of your reward. <laughs> now, the context here is uh, false theology can cheat you of your reward. And he talks about legalism, asceticism, mysticism, hyperspirituality. He lists various forms of what I call contradictions to the Christian way of life. Satan has a substitute for the gospel, right? Satan has faith plus gospels. Uh, Satan also has substitutes on how to live the Christian life. Think about that. Satan does not want you to live a life in glorification with God with the Lord producing fruit through you by faith. He wants you to get involved in legalism. He wants you to get involved in antinomianism. He wants you to get involved in mysticism. He wants you to get to go down this road. So we have to be careful that false teachers do not rob us of what we could have had. And I think that's the idea. Uh, let no one cheat you of your reward. Taking delight in false humility, asceticism, worship of angels, mysticism, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. Those false views of the Christian life take away from your focus on Christ. Angels more important than the person of Christ. That's why Hebrews 1 uh, this mystical view of Christ being an angel or angels you know, speaking, talking to angels and all that took away from 
the focus on the one who is above all angels, the Lord Jesus Christ. This parallels once again Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus. Uh, they're involved in angels, worshiping angels, praying to eight dead spirits, by the way. They think are angels. And all these mystical ideas. Uh, these individuals can take you off the path of godliness. And uh, what appears to be godliness is not actually a contradiction to genuine growth by grace. Not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. So there'll be individuals through various false teaching that will distract you and, and keep you, cheat you, rob you of your reward. And that's why Paul mentions about grace, grace, the grace way of living instead of all these substitutes for Christian living. 2 Timothy 2.12 If we endure with him, there's perseverance, right? James 1. Perseverance. We endure, we're faithful, we shall reign with him. That is what? Reward. Reign with him in his coming kingdom. There's many verses dealing with the promise of positions of authority in Christ's millennial kingdom if we persevere. If we deny him, he will deny us. Meaning, if we say no to Christ in our Christian life, we may be saved by God's grace, but we say, eh, I'm not going to run the Christian life by faith. I'm going to live for self. When the Lord sees you at the judgment seat of Christ, reigning with me, no. He's going to say no to us. That's the context. He's going to deny you what? Context. Reigning with him. Right? Let's read it again. If we endure, we shall also what? reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. What's the context? Reigning with him. Reward. Very simple. He's not denying your salvation, your justification. As a matter of fact, your salvation is secure because in verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He promised us eternal life. He's not going to go back on his word. He cannot deny his own essence. God of faithfulness, God of justice, satisfied when Christ died. We can go on, omnipotent power, that you're kept by God's power, his divine essence. He cannot deny his nature. And uh, therefore, we have eternal security in that passage. But the reward, though, we can lose out on rulership with Christ in, his, in the coming kingdom. Loss of reward if we fail to persevere. Revelation 3.11 Warning uh, to believers here. It's an exhortation and a warning here. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Word takos means swiftly. When he comes, he will come with swiftness. He said, hold fast what you have. Continue to persevere. So that no one will take your crown. I think it's the same idea of cheat you of your reward. False teachers that will distract you from the genuine Christian life by grace will rob you of what you could have had. And uh, I think the Bema, it's interesting, the coming of Christ is associated with the Bema. The Bema follows the coming of Christ, the return of Christ for the church. Continue to persevere so that no one will cheat you of your reward. No one will take your crown. Now, Let's take a look then at another thing a believer can lose. So a born-again believer can lose reward. Now some people look at that, ah, I don't care about a reward. I've heard an individual who preaches actually his last message in the church I grew up in. 
this particular pastor. And he said, well, it's not really a big deal that, you know, I'm not looking for a reward. When Paul says, I press for the prize, was Paul uh, carnal to press toward the reward, you know? And Jesus said, a cup of cold water, give him my name, he shall no wise lose his what reward. Was Jesus wrong in offering that to believers? These people, they're communists at heart, by the way. <laughs> they, you know, everyone's going to be equal in heaven, so he's not worried about reward. He's not right. Well, you know, I think it's a powerful motivation. And he said, well, we should just serve the Lord just because we love him. That's one motivation, yes. That's not the only motivation. And we've, we're, looking, we're looking at the motivation of divine discipline. There's negative motivation in the Christian life. There's positive motivation. So we're looking at, hey, if you don't follow Christ, here's what could happen as a believer. This is what you can lose. This is negative motivation here. So people don't think big deal about rewards. Um, you know, they're they're not uh, uh, they're <laughs> they're just wrong, plain wrong. <laughs> now you can lose peace. Peace as a believer. Uh, your joy can your your tranquility can be taken. Isaiah fifty seven twenty and twenty one. Isaiah fifty seven twenty and twenty one. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. That's all it produces in their life. Lack of rest, always disturbed, never tranquil. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. It's true for the unbeliever as well as as a believer. Now, there's temporal satisfaction. The Bible speaks of pleasures of sin for a season. I've always said this. Sin is fun, otherwise no one would do it. (laughs) What do I mean by that? I mean there might be temporal pleasures, right? And that's what the world focuses upon. Feel good. Uh, if it feels good, do it. But you know what? It doesn't bring peace. You're always another conquest, another this in your life. It just never settled. And nothing produced in your life but mire and dirt, muck, muck and dirt. And so this is true also of believers. You want to live a life in rebellion against God? Go ahead. But let me tell you this. You're not going to have peace. You're not going to have peace. You're not going to have the peace that Christ can give. Uh, didn't he say, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives? Give I unto you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The peace that Christ gives is far above anything that the world can offer. And you don't want to be a believer who is constantly troubled, never at rest. Next, uh, let's look at Galatians 5.22. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. Peace. Well, if I'm not walking by means of the Spirit, guess what? Peace will not be produced through me. Peace will not be produced through me. I won't have peace with other believers, and I won't have certainly peace with God as well. Next thing a believer can lose, fellowship with God. Number three. Uh, Psalm 51 11a here in David's case David mentioned this that he lost this fellowship do not cast me away from your presence broken fellowship 
broken fellowship. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, this is not a prayer that a New Testament believer can ever pray. Where the Holy Spirit abides with us for forever. Now, we can lose the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. We cannot lose the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. We can lose the Spirit's control in our life by carnality. <clears throat> take me not away from your presence. You know, broken fellowship with God. And you want to see a believer in fellowship. Read the Songs of David when he is in fellowship. Tremendous. Christians have derived strength through reading the Psalms. David's heart when he was walking with God. But take that away, broken fellowship, turmoil in his life. Then we let's take a look at 1 John 1, 6 and 7. New Testament verse. If we say we have fellowship with him, this is a claim by Christians. I'm walking with God, and we're walking in darkness. You're a liar. <laughs> we lie and are not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have what? Fellowship. That is the key word to First John. He's not talking about test of salvation. He's talking about test of fellowship. I don't love my brethren or love fellow believers. I'm out of fellowship. I can't claim to be in fellowship and hate Christians. It doesn't work that way. Uh, so he lays down certain tests, 9 or 10, that John MacArthur tried to lay out, saying, see, if you don't do this and this and this and this and this and this and this, and this you're not really saved. And I think that misses the point of 1 John. It's fellowship with God. It's not justification, it's sanctification. We walk in the light as he's in light. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, keeps on cleansing us from all sins. And then certainly, if we're out of fellowship, context clearly, what do we need to do? We need to do what David did, own up the wrongdoing. If we confess our sins, verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Meaning that if we own up to the wrongdoing we're aware of, the one the wrongdoing that we're not aware of, he cleanses us. Very interesting. All unrighteousness. So fellowship is the issue. Broken fellowship we can lose. Now I'm going to fast forward here and show you the chart. You're familiar with this chart. Uh, very important that we go back to the basics. I think we lose out many many times when we go don't go back to the basics. Uh, when I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm placed in union with Christ. This is called my position in Christ. Flowing from that, at least 50 things that God has given to us in union with Christ. My position in Christ is permanent. It's eternal. I cannot get out of the top circle. My salvation is secure. I have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ placed in my account. And by the way, we'll see in Psalm 32 that David mentioned that, by the way. Romans 4 mentions two individuals who were justified in the Old Testament by faith. He mentions Abraham, and then he mentions David. Blessed is a man to whom the Lord will not impute sin, David's case. He was justified by faith. Imputed righteousness. But what's lacking, though, when we live out in carnality, outside of fellowship, we break that relationship with God. Just like in marriage. You could live with someone, but, you know, could be family feud, fighting, that, you know, a bitterness between both of you and fighting and fighting. You're, you're married to that person. That hasn't changed, but fellowship is broken. 
fellowship is broken. It's a relationship term. So keep in mind, your fellowship with God is relational. It's, and that's what God wants us to live. God wants us to live in that relationship day by day. And when we sin, we can't, uh, we can't agree with God. How can two walk together except they be what? Agreed. I'm not agreeing with a holy God. Fellowship is broken. Fellowship is broken. And that's why rebound, basketball analogy, I like that analogy. Shoot a basket, miss it. Got an opportunity to take that ball and put it back in the basket again. You missed the mark. Sin is that, right? Sin is missing the mark. (laughs) Basketball player has the opportunity to take that ball. Rebound. Great term. We can come back. We can restore fellowship by owning up the wrongdoing. 1 John 1.9 Top circle is imputed righteousness. That's why we're going to heaven. That's our standing. But God wants practical righteousness in your life. In Romans 6, it's imparted righteousness. Romans 6 deals with two aspects of righteousness. And the bottom circle is imparted righteousness. So going back here then to our points. Fellowship can be broken. We can lose fellowship, but not our justification. Privileged position. Sometimes if God has uh, given us certain gifts in certain ministries... Uh, we can be non-effective in those ministries, I think, especially as David is king. An example of this is, notice Psalm 51.11. Um, let's go back here. Psalm 51.11b. He said, Do not cast me away from your presence, and then take not your Holy Spirit from me. What was he referring to? He's referring to what happened to Saul. Saul's kingship was removed. I'm going to remove my enduing power as far as kingship is concerned. And David wanted to... David continued, by the way, to reign as king. He did not lose that. And uh, so what happened to Saul did not happen to David. And I think he had that right in mind. His former... uh, The person who came before him as king, Saul, God took his and doing power upon him for leadership. And here it says, do not take that from me. Um, and because he owned up the wrongdoing, and Saul never did. He made excuses. He you know, blamed everyone else uh, instead of uh, it, looking in the mirror. So I think a born-again believer can lose the capacity to minister to others because of carnal- ongoing carnality. Tra- it was tragedy, tragic when you see that happen. All right, privileged position. Now, joy, joy. Look at Psalm fifty-one, eight and twelve. Psalm fifty-one, verses eight and twelve. Take a look at eight, verse eight here. David's uh, confession is: He says, "Make me hear joy and gladness. Make me hear joy and gladness." And notice here, verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. didn't say restore salvation. He said restore to me the joy of your salvation. Going back to the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. Joy can be taken away when we live in rebellion against God as a believer. We can lose that joy. We can also, going back here, or the forward, this next, the capacity to understand the Word of God. 
Very important. We can lose the capacity to understand the Word of God. Psalm 51, verse 13. All right. Notice after restored fellow, he was restored back to fellowship. He said, "Then I will teach transgressors your ways. I'll be able to communicate clearly your word." Um, and I think in carnality, uh, we're walking as a carnal individual. Uh, then uh, we lose our capacity to understand the word of God, and therefore, you remember what he told the Hebrew. Christians who were saved probably 30 years, Hebrews 6. You have someone who needs to teach you the basics. Remember that? Hebrews 5, 11. Uh, so our capacity to understand the Word of God by faith is through the filling, in the New Te- for the New Testament believers, through the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. If I'm in fellowship with God, so I, you know, we take a time to acknowledge sin before teaching so that you'll be in fellowship because ultimately it's the Holy Spirit who teaches you. Now, if I'm not walking in agreement with God, why should God give me further information? It's a waste of His time. Why should He give me great spiritual truth if I don't want to follow it? So it's very important that um, we don't lose that capacity to... to, uh, Understand the Word of God. We won't look at Psalm 32. You can reference that. Hebrews 5. There's that passage here. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. We'll look at that. Here's a Corinthian believer. Uh, or not Corinthian. The Hebrew Christian. He says here. Um, of whom we have much to say. Here's a preacher's verse. And hard to explain. Here it is. <laughs> should put that in the pulpit right we have much to say and hard to explain sometimes but the problem is not with the dull preacher the problem is with the dull congregation since you become dull of hearing you don't want to hear it right the word dull means by the way lazy lazy in your hearing they were lazy christians i just wanted you know this to be entertained i don't want to hear doctrine well uh, i feel sorry for you Let's take a look at uh, then 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. Classic passage on carnal Christian. And I, brethren, cannot speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, fleshly, as babies in Christ. Now, understand there's a distinction between what Peter indicates as a babe. He says, as newborn babes receive the milk of the word that you might grow thereby. He's talking to new believers in that passage. Here, though, these are babies, like in the Hebrew case, because they're in carnality and they haven't progressed from square one. They're still, with the, they're still in the basics. And that's why he treats them as such. I can't teach you advanced doctrine because you're still a baby Christian. How many baby Christians we have in the United States of America. I've fed you with milk. What do you feed babies? Not solid food. Milk. And not with solid food. Advanced doctrine. Why? Because you're not able to receive it. You'll choke on it. You can't handle it. Even now, you're still not able. Why? Look at verse 3. For you are still fleshly. You're still carnal. You can't handle it. And so it's very important to remain in fellowship 
so we can advance in the Word of God. And if we don't, then we might revert, actually. By the way, you can actually lose the doctrine that you have taken in over the years through ongoing carnality. It could be like a vacuum sucked out of your uh, soul or mind, and you can lose what you have obtained at that point, like the Hebrew Christians. We need to teach you the ABCs again. Why? They were taught that. They were taught that. But you got to go back to square one because of rebellion against God. And I'll just put the rest of them. Maybe we'll continue this next time. We have loss of capacity to honor God. Loss of reputation. Your reputation can be lost as a Christian. Your health. You can lose your health. Lose life. That's the ultimate uh, form of divine discipline. So there's a lot to lose as a Christian in carnality. And so we pray that uh, if there's ongoing sin in our life or even any sin, that as believers we might rightly own up to that and restore fellowship and continue in the Christian life by grace. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray that you might continue to help us to produce godly fruit, help us to be sober and serious about our rebellion, if there's rebellion in our heart, and that you might point it out, Lord. Your Holy Spirit might illuminate that to our soul, that we might own up the wrongdoing, that we might desire your truth, so that we might grow in your grace. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.